We're going to go this morning into Psalm 44. And I've actually been, so we're, we're, we're at the very end of our kind of, what's it been, four months now on a series on build, where we're trying to kind of rebuild our faith and come back to some rhythms and practices that are healthy for us. And, um, and so in this kind of last Sunday of that series, um, I've been looking ahead. We finished the, the four main pieces. So we talked for a month about prayer, a month about scripture, a month about community, a month about blessing the people that are around us. And I've been excited for a while now to talk about what I'm going to talk about this morning. It's been on my heart, and I'm really excited to open this with you. And Psalm 44 is the perfect bit of scripture to take us there. So um, it, starts, it starts like this. We're going to start at the beginning here. And I think I skipped the, the heading. This is a song um, of the sons of Korah. And I'm not doing great at, there we go. I think I had an assist on that. Thank you guys. <clears throat> it starts, it says it's to the choir master. It's a mascal of the sons of Korah. Okay. So this is a like group Psalm. These sons of Korah, they're like Levites, priestly people. And they're writing this. Many of them were written individually by David or others. And, um, but this one is like a group song from these priests And they're coming out and just pouring their hearts out to God. So let's read the first three verses here. It says, Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. With your own hand, you drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. I mean, isn't that beautiful, right? This is everything that I want when I come to worship with God's people is this, that man, we, we can stand here and we can say, hey, we've seen, we've heard the stories. God has done amazing things, right? The people that have oppressed us, that came up against us, God worked this. It wasn't our arm. It wasn't our strength. It was God's strong arm. And we can just affirm that and, and see just how beautiful that is. My heart rejoices when I hear that. But there's something in um, these words itself that I think adds a little note of dissonance. And this is the thing that I want to dig in this morning. They've heard of God's great, so God did these amazing things, right? But how is it coming down to the people who are writing this psalm? They say, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers told us about it, right? When did these things happen? It happened in the days of our fathers, right? In the days of old. And so they're celebrating truly what God did, but there's this note of, We've heard, God, about what you did in those days long ago, long time, way back. And, you know, we've been talking about um, in this series building up our faith, and we're getting back into Scripture and prayer. But I know that there's some of you, and I think I feel confident saying there's many of you, uh, some of whom I've been chatting with over the last four months, who are feeling like, okay, we're talking about rebuilding this faith, but I don't feel like I've got a whole lot left to build with. There's this sense of, yes, I know, I know, I know. It is, there's good things that God has done. I've seen it. I've heard of it. But there's something missing in my own life. And God is just not there when I call out to him. My faith is a little more broken. I've learned some things. I've experienced some things this year that has left. I think the, the elephant in the room of, of contemporary uh, Christianity, Christianity in America at least these days, the elephant in the room is that there's a whole lot of people that don't want the faith that we share. 
that, that are kind of becoming more disillusioned with it. And, and many of them are, are still you guys whom, whom I love and you still, we love our family and everything, but there's many of you that are kind of um, silently struggling and just saying, you know, there's this whole thing I've experienced and I feel like it's slipping between my fingers. And this psalm, man, I'm telling you, is a perfect way for us to actually just kind of sit down and process that together. Um, where, where we can just acknowledge, like, hey, this is hard at times, right? And the faith that satisfied our parents may not be satisfying us now in the same way. The faith that, that, that was uh, doing fine for us maybe three, four, five years ago maybe isn't doing it for us right now. And we can talk about those two things. So, so what I want to do is I want to um, address two people, uh, two types of people as we go through this morning. I want to talk to um, those of you, and, and I, I, there's some in this room I know, and, and there's others that are, that are not here, but... Um, who are deconstructing their faith. The term deconstructing just means like you have this faith, this building of your faith, and it's kind of coming apart in something. There's, there, there's these flaws, there's these holes you're seeing, and your faith is beginning to deconstruct a little bit. And it looks very different for everybody. So, so you'll hear, like you could read articles about deconstruction in the church now. It just, it looks different for every single one. So there's no like uniform thing. But I, I want to talk to those of you this morning that feel your faith deconstructing a little bit. And the other group I want to talk to this morning is, is those of us that have people that we love that we see are deconstructing. So a lot of the times that's parents that, whose kids kind of grow up and go out of the house and they find faith isn't what I want in the same way that, I, that, you, that you experience it. Um, maybe you have kids that would go to church, but they wouldn't go to your church. Um, all, all these things are real and happening. And I know like for myself with daughters that are nine and 11 years old, um, I have this, this um, uneasiness on my, in my stomach about what happens if they grow up and, and think for themselves and then they don't want what I find so life-giving and refreshing and um, powerful in my own soul? So we'll use this psalm to address that. Okay, so first we have to see, I mean, God has done amazing things, but here they are acknowledging it, and it's a little in the past. Now, the, each of these like kind of stanzas in the psalm, we're going to kind of experience it with these sons of Korah. We're going to walk through it with them and try to feel what they felt. So at first, they're just acknowledging, man, God, you've done amazing things. Now, let's go to the next few verses here, and I'm still not very powerful. With, thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, in verse 4, <clears throat> you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. I read this and I see, okay, there's, there's some amazing theological truths here, right? God is their king. He's their strength that's helping them defeat their foes. He's the salvation from those that are oppressing them. And so what are they going to do? I just love it in verse 8. We boasted in God continually. We'll give thanks to his name forever. So I think, I think what we're seeing here still, and, and if you're uh, not looking at your Bible it's going to take a turn in just a second. But still what we're seeing is the acknowledgement of what God's done in the past. And here we have this, this affirmation of theological truth that I think is coming from somewhere deep and important in their souls as they're writing this. And they're saying, I still can say from somewhere deep down in my heart that God is my king, that God will save me, that he has saved me, that I constantly boast in him, that I'm going to look to him for salvation. So there's this affirmation of what God is doing that comes from what we've learned from our forefathers. And there's also an affirmation of, I believe these truths still deep down somewhere inside of me. But here's where it twists just a little bit. We're going to jump now to verse 9. But he says, but you have rejected us 
and disgraced us and have not gone out, gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And so here we have people that we've seen have believed, heard and believed what they've seen from their fathers and, and their, their grandmothers and everybody else that it's passed down to them and they've seen it and they believe it and they hear it and they themselves will confess that truth. But what they're dealing with, I think, is an existential crisis. They're saying, okay, I believe these things, but in my daily lived experience, it's not quite lining up with the things that I've been taught and with the things that I myself even believe down in my core level. And there's this crisis and there's this tension. And I think this is where um, the, the, the deconstruction begins for many people as you start to kind of allow yourself to ask a question that maybe when you were younger or maybe a few years ago, you didn't quite let yourself ask the question or formulate. You were afraid of letting that question form saying, okay, but if God is good and if he's for me and if, and if he's the one that fights my battles and all these kinds of things, then why do I feel like, as they're saying, why do I feel like God's rejected us? Why do I feel cast off from him? Why do I sit here? And, and a lot of us can relate to this this year for a variety of reasons. Why have we sat here for the last 15 months and prayed and called out to God and said, God, like, save my job, and then what happens? Your job is not saved, you know? Save my sick relative, and then your sick relative is not saved. Um, save my mental health, and then your mental health is not saved. We have these experiences that, that just simply do not fit with, with what we believe theologically about God. So there's, on the one hand, there's the faith of the Proverbs, and you read through all the Proverbs, and there's um, so many amazing statements about how good God is and how if you do what's right, you'll be blessed, right? Proverbs is all about, you know, seek first the kingdom, seek first God and his righteousness. All these things will be, like, there's just so many, like, beautiful blessing rules to live by in Proverbs, but then you flip a little uh, to some other places in the Old Testament, and you read Job, and Job is a righteous man, and Job does what is right, and Job prays and refuses to renounce God, but what happens? His life is destroyed, and his family is gone, and all of his wealth, and he's just sitting there in the ash heap. See, sometimes we start with the faith of Proverbs, but we end up with the faith of Job, and we're wondering, gosh, what, is, what does it mean for God to be good when all this is happening? Or the faith of Ecclesiastes. I, at some point in the next few years, I'd love to walk through Ecclesiastes together because it is the same kind of a thing where he's affirming over and over again, God is good and he's with his people. But then he says, but I keep looking around and I see that, you know, it's not the righteous person that prospers. It's often the wicked person that prospers. And he's kind of asking, how do we wrestle with that? How do we handle it? And so I think that these, these psalmists, these sons of Korah are writing this and they're, they're saying, okay, I know this deep down, but God, in our experience, we're looking around and it hurts, it's painful, and we don't know how to, we don't know how to um, explain how this is. And it, it feels like either, either God doesn't care about us or God's actively sold us out. And you could picture what they described here, and this description would fit really well for those that are like unchurched, those outside of the church, those that don't believe in God. Like what, do, what are we kind of, you read through the Bible, and what do you expect to be true of people that don't follow Jesus? You expect them to feel lost, maybe. You expect them to feel lonely. They don't have the church community that we do. You expect them to, to feel meaningless. And I feel like these sons of Korah are sitting here saying, yeah, but yeah, that's what we'd expect for 
our enemies or those outside to feel, but we're feeling it. And what's happening with that? What does it mean when we are the ones feeling like those who have been cast out? And so there, there it is. There's this, this thing. And maybe, maybe you relate to that. Maybe you don't relate to it at all. But even if you don't relate to it at all, I think it's important to hear it, right? And to recognize there's, there's people in the faith. There's passages in the Bible where they're actually wrestling with that tension. And so for us to kind of begin to get that empathy, and if you're feeling it, man, relate to that. So let's go to the next few verses, down in verse 17 here. Here's now the complaint that they leave before God, and here's where I get the most uncomfortable because of the way that they talk about their relationship with God. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So here is their complaint. And they're basically saying, okay, we're having this crisis. We're feeling cut off. And here's the thing. We didn't leave God. God's the one who left us. We weren't standing here sinning and doing all these horrible things. God just abandoned us. Now, everybody is probably feeling a little bit uncomfortable, just as I am when I read this, because I think that's ridiculous, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of course, you went away from God. It's also, you know, we have the advantage to look back and say, I've read the Old Testament. I know how bad these people were over and over and over again. I know how bad I am. And so we can look at it and say, okay, they, this is theologically inaccurate. Yes, they have abandoned God. We all do. And so on some level, like it's, it's like, okay, don't be self-righteous here. But I don't, I don't think that this is really meant to be, I and mean, this is poetry, right? And so I don't think it's meant to be saying, I am absolutely blameless before the Lord. I think what they're saying, they're express, expressing this feeling um, that I think comes from a place of wounding. They're hurt, and they're saying, God, I felt like I was on track with you, but then something changed, and I don't feel like it was me. And man, I think that, I think that is a great way to describe what a lot of people in, um, and I, I, it's not a totally a generational thing, but to some extent, I think a lot of people in my generation and below have felt like they were raised in the faith and they have continued on in a, in a trajectory they thought was set and they feel like the church has kind of left them behind rather than feeling like they're the rebellious ones that have left. And we can argue true or false, but I think that's the, that's the feeling that a lot of people have that I talk to. I think verse 22 sums up pretty well um, what the feeling is, the, the feeling of hurt and woundedness. For your sake, we're killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you're reading through Psalms, it's not that long ago that you read Psalm 23 that's talking about how the Lord is my shepherd, right? I shall not want. Like he, he leads me to the, the still waters and through the green pastures. And so there's this beautiful picture of we're sheep and they're saying, God, I feel like we're sheep, sure, but we're just sheep that you're letting go to the slaughter. And here is the pain and the hurt and they're disillusioned. So, so what, does it, what does it mean? I mean, when you feel like this, I think one thing we could do is we could look at those that are leaving the church, those that are deconstructing, and we could say, you know what? I'm sorry that you feel that way, but this is what it is, right? This is church. This is truth. And so believe it or yeah, if you don't believe it, you can go away. Like that, I think that's a legitimate response. But I think it would be more compassionate for us to look and see, you know what? Can we, can we try to understand what it feels like for someone to feel like, you know, I thought that I was following Jesus, but I feel like the church has 
shifted. I think the church has its priorities wrong. I think the church has sometimes become the kind of place that, that it doesn't feel like what I read about in the New Testament. And so while I think, yes, let's call people back to the faith, I think let's also not be so defensive that we can't acknowledge, you know, maybe there are some things that we do as a church, and I'm talking like capital C church, like globally, or at least just the church in America. Maybe there's some things in the church that we've done that do make these younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, start to feel like, you know what, this faith is not really the thing that I thought it was or that I signed up for. And maybe there's some ways that we make church unnecessarily difficult for those generations. So I think um, just a few things that I think we might do, um, and this is not an accusation to Creekside or to anyone here necessarily, but I think we have to wrestle with it, is I think a lot of times we've made secondary issues into primary issues. And I, and I think we kind of know what that feels like from this last year. We take things that are less important, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about them, but we exalt them to the place of the highest importance. And I think that often in the church, we become sort of gatekeepers, right? Rather than being this community, rather than being this home, rather than being this family, we've become kind of gatekeepers. And, and we lay out our secondary issues, the things that are less important, the things that are less emphasized in Scripture, the things that kind of fall short when Paul says to the Corinthians, like, when I was among you, I, knew, I decided I would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I feel like a lot of times we've stepped in and said, okay, hang on though. There's a whole lot of other things that you also need to know and we're gonna test you on them. And if you don't pass the test, you're gonna have to find somewhere else to go. I feel like we've kind of made church, at, like true or false of Creekside, true or false of churches in your experience, I think that we've made a whole generation, a couple of generations maybe feel like that's the case. That we're just watching and that we're waiting to get mad at them when they disagree with us. I think another big thing that's happening is, um, and this isn't in Creekside, but in the church as a whole, I think that we've often created sort of um, empires or power structures or authority figures, and we've kind of, like, we've seen abuse pop up in those things. And sometimes that's sexual abuse, sometimes it's, like, power abuse, and there's bullying or whatever, and we've kind of, like, our institutions, our Christian institutions have often sort of protected the powerful rather than pleading the case of the vulnerable. And I, I see a lot in my generation and below that are just wrestling with that and just saying, how can I be a part of a group that's more worried about preserving their power than about caring for the people that are hurting? And so we see these things coming, 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 and there's a generation that's just saying, I don't, that's not what I want. That's not what I read in the Testament. It's not what I want. John Mark Comer is a, a pastor up in Portland. He talks about how um, when he sees these young people deconstructing, he says, often there's something important there that does need to be deconstructed. So rather than just saying, oh, you're rejecting my faith. No, if you're, if you're feeling like, okay, there was something that I used to believe or something I used to cling on to, and, and I'm feeling like this need to deconstruct these sin, there's probably something there that actually does need to be deconstructed. And he says, you know, for a, lot of, um, for a lot of Gen Z and millennials, he says that what that looks like is they're really clued into authority structures and power and who has it and how they use it. And he says they look at the churches and they see a lot of power structures and a lot of authority and a lot of, like, we're not going to, you know, let you have your voice, and we're not going to listen to people that are opposing us. Um, he says, too, a lot of it has been the recent Christian nationalism that he's seen. He says, people are just saying, church is not that group that I want to be a part of. But John Mark Comer, and I agree with this, says there is a healthy version of deconstruction. So there's some things we don't want to reject, of course, right? But he says we can do healthy deconstruction like Jesus did, right? Because Jesus came in and he would quote scripture to them saying, okay, you, you've heard that it was said. He'd quote scripture and their tradition that they've sort of added to it. He said, you've heard that it was said, 
but I say to you. And Jesus was deconstructing a version of the faith that the people at his time felt like was really biblical, was really important. And Jesus came in and helped them see it in different light, helped them see it fresh. And, and so the call is to say, maybe we could follow Jesus in that. And when we, when we see people challenging some of the things that we think are really essential and really important, maybe we can listen to them. And, and, and it, one of the big problems we have is we're tempted to follow the cultural norms. So I think, I think many of us in the church, we would say, okay, um, someone's deconstructing, they're, they're having a hard time with the church and the authority. What they're doing is they're listening to the voices in the culture, and they're neglecting the voice of Scripture, right? Scripture has to be our authority, and so you're just listening to what's popular in the culture. Love is love, and, um, and you know, everything's just like, like, we can't be mean to everybody. Everybody's a winner. Everyone gets a trophy. We get upset about all these things in the culture, and it's, and it's easy to dismiss and just say, hey, you're just listening to the culture and not listening to Scripture. And I think there's a truth in that on some level. I think there's been a shift of authority being this external thing. I think people used to come to their churches because they were like, um, I need to know what's true about the afterlife and about spirituality, and I want to know what's true about my daily life. And people used to come to the church and, and cared a lot about what pastors would say about, here's how you live your life. Here's Christian view of sexuality. Here's how you should even vote in some cases. And um, I think, man, that's long gone. I think authority has shifted to where people don't care so much what their pastors say about these things. I think you come and you either resonate with it or you don't. And the authority has shifted a lot from an external thing to more of like a, does it ring true for me? Does it feel authentic to me? And I think there's some good and there's some bad in that whole thing. But I think the key is when we hear someone's concerns, when we see somebody struggling with something that we've held on to, that we proclaim that seems really important and valuable to us, when we hear those concerns, to ask the question and say, hey, I, I, am I willing to challenge my assumptions? Am I willing to go back to Scripture? Because ultimately, I do believe Scripture is our authority. It's what's going to tell us what's right. God is our authority, and he's spoken to us in Scripture. And so coming to that place of being willing to listen and say, okay, you know what? I thought this. I've been taught this way. Could I go back and could I see? Maybe I've been wrong in some things. Maybe I have been taking secondary issues and raising them too high. Okay, let's go to the, um, let's see, is this the last one? It's not, it is the last one. Let's, let's see how they end this psalm. And here's the call at the end, and I think this is actually really pretty. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So I love that this psalm, okay, it starts beautiful, right? And then it gets kind of dark and you're like, where is this going to go? And I love that it, it, that it ends with just a plea to God, a simple plea to God. There's not answers to it, right? He doesn't, re they don't resolve like what they've been wrestling with, but they come and they just say, God, wake up and come and help me. And, and I think sometimes for, for those that are deconstructing, I think that sometimes that's all the faith that you can muster is a plea to God. And I think that that actually, like Jesus said, is like that mustard seed of faith. This thing that is actually seems small and it seems weak. And if all you can do is just say, God, I don't know what I believe anymore, but please help me. I think that in itself is an affirmation of faith because you're still crying out to the God that you're wrestling with, that you're struggling with, and saying, God, I want you to help me. I don't have this together. I don't know everything of what I'm doing. Please, would you speak to me, and would you help me? And I think it's there. I think it's there in that, that little bit of belief is there in just the prayer itself. They don't have to have it all together. 
I've told you guys before um, that I love Flannery O'Connor. She writes these, um, she, she, in, the, in the last century, she wrote these short stories, and they were like, they were really dark. Um, so there was, I mean, there's, there's murders, and there's just all, none of the stories end happy in the way that you would want them to. Um, and what, what she says about it, she was, she was a Catholic, so her faith was extremely important to her, and she would say how she, she wanted that faith to come through in the stories, but her, her characters were so flawed that she would think, like, how does this person have any faith at all? She's writing about these, story, these um, people that are, that are cursing Christ, and they're, um, they're leaving the church, and they're, um, they're resting. They're kind of bad people in the stories, and you think, how can a Christian writer, someone who, like, believes in Jesus on some level, like, how could she not um, have these characters that are heroes of the faith? And she says, basically, she says, you know, with my characters, they are flawed, they're broken, but she says, I think their virtue lies not in the fact that they have all the answers, not in the fact that their faith is doing great, but their virtue lies in the fact that they're not ever able to fully walk away from Jesus. And so for her, she says, a lot of times her characters were like, Jesus was moving through the trees in the back of their minds, you know? They're trying to move on and forget Jesus, but she's saying, you know what's amazing is that they, they can't ever fully leave him behind. Their life is still wrestling. And I just, I love that thought of, you know, there's, there's, I think there's a generation. I think there might be a couple generations here that, that their faith doesn't look like what ours has looked like, like what I've inherited and what I embrace. There's a generation where it's, it's going to be a trickier, rockier road, but I think even just that, like, haunting by Jesus, um, that, that thought, the Christian poet, uh, Christian Wyman, he says, um, that Jesus is like a thorn in his brain that he can never quite like forget about and move past and he's always there nagging. I think that is a seed of a thing that can grow into something beautiful. You know, in that, in that last, um, that last uh, section that we looked at, actually right here um, in verse 22, it says, for your sake we're killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So there's this cry of pain and anguish. But then what's interesting is that's actually, um, if we go on to the next slide, that's actually in Romans 8. Um, that becomes, that gets picked up by Paul, that quotation. And he says something so beautiful about it. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is in Romans 8. What shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he quotes it, or as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, I, I love this. I love that he's quoting us because he's saying, like Paul is writing about it. What, what can separate, like we're going through these hard things. What can separate us from God's love? And then he reaches back to our Psalm in Psalm 44 and picks this anguished cry of these people that are like, God, we've heard about what you've done, but we're feeling cast off. We feel like you've rejected us and we feel like these sheep that have been scattered. And Paul quotes that, but then he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think it's so beautiful. And Psalm 44 ends with exactly that. There's a cry to God. And in verse 26, it says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There's a memory, there's a reminder, there's a, a seed of faith that holds on to nothing more than this, I think, in this psalm. The only thing they're holding on to is, God, please save us for the sake of your steadfast love, your love that never quits, your love that never gives up, and there's this longing and there's this hope. And so I think in that whole thing, 
there is this call for us to just continue on to say, hey, I, I, there may be a lot of things that I'm doubting. There may be a lot of things that I used to be sure about that I'm not as sure about anymore, but I know this about God. I can hear what my, what my parents and my grandparents have said about you, and I know those things. I've experienced them, and I cannot get rid of this sense that, that there is this love that is pursuing me in my life, and it's you. And I think that gives us so much to work with. I think, I think what, what is, what's been helpful for me recently is um, thinking about, like, generations in Christianity um, almost like a pendulum swinging back and forth, okay? So you picture, like, through the Middle Ages, you had um, the faith was becoming more Catholic, and it was, like, the, the worst version that Catholicism has ever had, where they're selling indulgences, and there's all this bad stuff, and they've got all these um, statues of saints, and they've got these relics, and people are worshiping these objects, and so the pendulum had swung so far over here, and the reformers, like Martin Luther, are grabbing that pendulum back and saying, no, that's wrong, and so they're smashing the, the, um, the statues, and they're getting rid of the relics, and they're putting the word of God back in the center, and they're swinging in the pendulum, and then you have like, I don't know, like it just, there's all kinds of versions of this, but just even say like the charismatic movement is saying, okay, these reformers got us into the Bible, but man, they got it all up in our heads, and they've become really judgmental, and the charismatic movement is saying, no, it's about the spirit of God, and they're pushing the pendulum back the other way, and they're saying it's about hearing his voice and following him, and the pendulum swings again, and the next generation comes and says, man, our parents had it so far off, and they swing it back again. And I've seen, even, even in my relatively short lifetime, I've seen um, Calvinism has come and gone, and then it came back again. And there's, there's just all these movements, and you feel like generation after generation is just angry at each other over things like, you know, when I was younger, it was the worship wars, and it was, um, okay, we sing hymns, and that's what it means to be Christian. And no, 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 we sing modern praise songs, and that's what it means to be Christian. And there's just all of these things, this wrestling that we have. And I think sometimes I'm tempted to believe what actually matters the most is let's figure this out and let's find where that that perfect middle is right like wouldn't it be amazing if we could be the balanced ones the ones that know like right where that middle is and we can push the pendulum just enough and bring it to rest good we got it we nailed christianity now we know how to move forward with the church right the problem with that though is even if we could do that then, then you hand it to a generation. You say, guys, we fixed it for you. Grow up with this. Believe this. Do this. There's nothing for them to do. There's no work. There's no fight. There's no ownership of it. And I just see that being set up as this dead faith. And I can see actually a lot of life in the reformers coming over here and yanking the pendulum back down and saying, we want Jesus so bad that we're going to fight the whole system and we're going to do this whole thing. And I see each generation kind of owning it and seeing, no, no, this isn't quite right. And they're pursuing it because what they want is Jesus. It gets bad when we're just fighting each other because we don't like each other. But when, when there's that core of there's someone, there's something that we're fighting for, I think there's health in it. And I think a healthy church is going to look at a younger generation and say, there's things, there's questions you're asking, you know, about, about the origins of the world. There's questions you're asking about, you know, how, how the end times is going to pan out. There's questions you're asking about, what does it look like for us to be socially engaged? There's things that are being wrestled with and thought about that we can either step in as gatekeepers and say, nope, you're, if you're in the church, it looks like this. Or we can be mentors to them, right? We can be family to them, and we can work as they try to swing that pendulum back and try to be a community where they can actually do that with faith, with love, making plenty of mistakes just as we did and continue to do. 
And so I guess my call for all of us would be, um, let's assess our assumptions often, right? When we hear someone challenging something, let's assess that honestly before the Lord. Let's look at scripture and find what it says. Um, my, my challenge to those that are deconstructing, whenever I'm talking to someone that it does feel like they're kind of losing their faith, I just encourage them like, hey, I, I don't know exactly what you're going through. I've gone through light, light versions of this, um, but I keep coming back to a place that's still honestly pretty conservative, pretty um, traditional, um, pretty, pretty faith-filled. Like, I, I feel um, like God has kept me from swinging too far, at least to this point in my life. But when I talk to them, I say, you know, I, what I would encourage you is, is do your best to process in community. And, and it doesn't look like you can't always talk to everybody. There's a fear in the church, I think, sometimes about raising these questions. There's a culture of fear, I think, we have sometimes of, if I voice that I'm doubting something that's considered key to the faith, I'm worried that I'm going to be ostracized and I'm going to put out. Or there's like a shame, a culture of shame that we have of like, if I admit that I'm doubting that I'm going to be seen as weak in the faith, I'm going to be put out. And so there's cultures of, there's a culture of gatekeeping, I think. And, and so there's these, these fears of if I tell my parents, if I tell my pastor, if I tell the people in the church with me, there's a lot of fear of what happens with that. And I would just say, man, if you're wrestling with that stuff, don't let these, these cultural elements keep you from processing in a healthy way. Try to find some of those people that are a safe place that you can talk to and, and wrestle with, because these, this is the real wrestle of a living faith, I believe. Um, try to be authentic to, to, to what you're experiencing. Try not to cram down the questions that you have. Sometimes we're so afraid of even acknowledging the questions to ourselves. But, but let yourself ask and let yourself wrestle, and I think that's healthy. Um, and try to be authentic to what you're experiencing and, and I think, too, just be open to maybe my faith, my, my faith has shifted a bit in the last, um, gosh, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm 39, so it's not like I have, like, that much experience with anything, but I feel like my faith when I was a child in a Christian home, in a Christian school, in a Christian church, looked one way, and it looked very different when I went off to college, and it looked a way different when I was in seminary, and it's changed a couple times since I've gotten out of seminary, and, um, and the ways that I connect with God changes, and it's not like my theology has been overhauled or anything like that, but what does it look like? It's changed, and I think there's some healthiness in all that. So how can we help, we as a church family, um, to, just want to end on this, how can we help people that are deconstructing? Um, I, think we can, I think we can learn to be better listeners to people. I think that we can, um, we can do always, do a better job of believing and embodying the actual gospel. I think that sometimes what what people, uh, when, when I talk to, uh, especially I, I still teach online classes for the Bible College down in Southern California, and um, a lot of these students are wrestling with this kind of stuff, and a lot of it for them is what they're rejecting is not Jesus, and what they're rejecting is not the Bible. What they're rejecting is stuff that I actually think we would all probably want to reject, right? They're rejecting hypocrisy, and they're rejecting some of the rigidity of church structures and those kinds of things. And so um, being, a, being willing to constantly be people that are better believing and better uh, embodying the gospel. Uh, I think we can help uh, these generations by valuing authenticity and even valuing the journey these people are on. I think we can help by being humble. I think that's always a good thing for us. Joining people in the journey that they're on, praying for them, creating a culture where there's acceptance and love and unconditional grace, even if they come to conclusions that we don't want. Um, I think we can help by being honest. Um, Francis Schaefer, I love. And um, in fact, if you didn't know, my oldest daughter, Abigail, her middle name is Shay. 
spelled S-C-H-A-E, because I have had and have such a huge man crush on Francis Schaeffer, um, and I love him. But he would, he would, he, his, his, like, one of his mottos was honest answers for honest questions, and he would talk to anybody that was doubting or wrestling or accusing Christianity or whatever, and he says, look, if you've got an honest question, I'm going to wrestle with you, and I'm going to give you an honest answer to that. I love that. I think the key is, you know, trusting the Spirit of God in this, right? We read earlier on, right? It wasn't our arm that saved us. It was you, God, who stepped in and intervened. I think remembering that, that it's, it's not about me being firm. Like, me, my faith is doing pretty good right now at this moment. Like, it really is. I have no delusion that that's because I'm awesome and I'm intelligent and I've done all the right things, right? It's God's grace that he's worked. And it's many of you guys helping to build me up and bolster me. Um, and I think, you know, it's learning to respect a faith that looks a little different than our own. So I just want to leave it at that. I, I, I didn't want to leave a sermon series. I've had this conviction growing over the last um, several weeks here that I didn't want to leave a series about let's build up our faith. Let's get back to where everything's just amazing again. Um, because I know that when I do that, ine- inevitably, there's a few people that are like, well, darn, I tried, and I still don't feel great, you know? I, I, I wanted that. I wanted to get closer to God through this whole pandemic, and I feel like I haven't. And, um, and I don't want to leave anyone totally disillusioned. I just want to say it's okay to wrestle, and, and, and we want to be the kind of family that's there with you in the wrestle. And if there's things that you're deconstructing, man, I, I personally would love to talk to you. I know there's so many people here that would love to. I'm, I'm conservative. I went to John MacArthur's seminary, so there's not many people that have a more conservative upbringing than I do. Um, and I have deconstructed from that from a bit, and I've reconstructed some of that. And I, I just, like, I, but I would love to talk and be a listening ear and be a, a journey partner in all of that, um, I consider it a huge honor to be able to do that. And uh, I mean, just for all of us, let's just be that kind of community that offers so much grace and wrestles in healthy ways and provides the kind of place where our kids, our, our, um, I'm, a, I'm what they call a geriatric millennial. I'm right at the oldest age of it. Um, but my fellow millennials and I and, the, and Gen Z and, and just everyone that's kind of coming up, man, let's be the kind of church that that doesn't, that doesn't grow into that old person church that's just angry at everything the young generation does, right? But that can just engage and love and wrestle and instruct them in the word of God and allow them to challenge some of our assumptions too. I've said enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that it is not up to us to figure everything out for ourselves. Lord, I feel this huge pull and need sometimes to have it figured out, to, to decide what's the best thing to say. How can I interact with someone in a way that's going to keep them close to you? But Lord, I know um, I want to pursue that. I want to be part of that. But Lord, ultimately, it's your job and it's your grace and it's your truth that pulls and wins and subdues. And so, Lord, I just pray um, for our church family. Lord, I, I, um, I believe this is a faithful group of people. I believe it's a group that loves you, that follows you. Um, I don't see a lot of people that are ostracized from you because of what this church family has done, and I'm thankful for that, Lord. That is your grace. I pray for us. I pray for, for our, um, our nation, our world as a whole, that you would... Um, Lord, provide a resurgence in the faith. I, I read all the, all the articles about um, doom and gloom about what's coming next, Lord, but I believe, Lord, that it, it has no, nothing to do with projections or what we think is happening, Lord. It just has to do with you and, and you winning hearts. And so I pray that you would do that. 
I pray that you would allow us, Lord, if we're trying to build our faith, allow us to look to you and be built up in you, not in ourselves, not in our habits, not in our rhythms. Lord, if we're lost, may we just be lost in you. You are the God that leaves the 99 sheep to seek the one. And uh, Lord, that's all of us. Lord, we all have been that one and we are still and probably will always be. But you are pursuing us and bringing us back. And I just pray we'd find that life in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.